Hey dear community, I am right now greeting you in Swiss German and this is where we travel today. The conference Interaction 23 is taking place this week in Zurich, Switzerland. For the beginning of the podcast series Interaction Stories 23, we thought it would be nice to present you some of the Swiss designer. Our guest today comes from Bern. Bern is the capital of Switzerland and is located in the center of our country, right on the border of the French and German part. Lara Portman is therefore a Swiss-German designer. She is speaking at Interaction 23 and her talk is called Normativity by Design. Challenging the ideal of the invisible interface. She is currently doing a PhD at the University of Bern, where she researches UX writing and its cultural political implications. Grüezi, dear Laura. Who are you doing today? I let you introduce yourself to your audience. Hi, Lydia. I'm I'm good. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Uh, yeah. So. How do I introduce myself in a few words? So I am currently uh, doing a PhD at the University of Bern, or I mean, to be correct, I should say I just finished actually, because I had my defense last week, but I'm still at the university at this point to basically continue my research a bit and finish things up. And what I do in my research is I look at the language work of user experience writers, and especially the beliefs and norms that UX writers hold. So their ideas about what good or bad UX is. And I'm interested in sort of what the bigger consequences of that is. So how that impacts the designs that they create and how that in turn impacts what people actually can do and who they can be when they use software. And before doing my PhD, I used to work in UX. I used to work at a small UX agency called Nothing in Bern. And I was responsible pretty much just for anything that was at the intersection of language and design. And I also did some UX research. So in a nutshell, me in three words would be language, design, and research. All right, all right. And now in order to start for our audience, we need first to clear something. Can you explain what an invisible interface is? Yes, of course, because that's, I mean, that's sort of the main premise of my talk, right? Um, exactly. <laughs> It can mean, of course, several things, right? So if you look, for instance, at human-computer interaction, especially there, an invisible interface might really mean an interface that is, you know, literally or physically invisible, so that it really cannot be seen by the naked eye. So something like, I don't know, sensory input or even, you know, voice recognition, which is not really visible. But what I'm more interested at and what I actually get at in my talk is something much simpler. It's the idea that, in UX, we have this idea or ideal that an invisible interface is sort of an interface that feels really intuitive to people, right? So it's more in a metaphorical sense. It's this idea that many people in design have that an, an, an interface should really feel so intuitive to users that the users don't even really notice it. That they just click through it without having to think about it. And I think that's or I assume that's something that many listeners will sort of recognize as something that they also sort of understand a good interface to be, right? This really sort of invisible and intuitive interface. It's a really an old, long-standing norm that is sort of embedded in our design culture. And what I actually want to do in my talk is 
challenge that a bit and sort of point out that there are also some problematic sides to that. Uh, it's like when you leave, you don't think I am a person. It's like I am using something. It's so clear that it's like part of you, part of your process. Yeah, exactly. That it's just sort of so much fits you as a user that you just go through it, that you don't even sort of register. Oh, I'm clicking here. I'm doing that. I'm doing this. Okay, that so would that, be yeah. ideal. We still have to work on it, eh, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's why I mean, we're here. <laughs> but that, that's sort of why it's an ideal, right? And not a, sort of a concrete thing that really exists. But yeah. as I said, my beef for this is that even this ideal is, in my opinion, not necessarily the best thing. And your talk, uh, what it is about and can attendees expect to learn and discover in your session? So my conference talk essentially starts with that question, what do people think is good UX? And that's something that I was interested in also in my research. And the thing is, when I asked my research participants this question, most of them told me that good UX is, you know, an interface that is done in such a way that it feels intuitive to users, that feels so intuitive and frictionless that it basically becomes invisible to them. And so that's where we get back to this ideal of the invisible interface that we talked about before. And the point that I want to make in my talk and that I sort of also make more generally in my work is that this ideal of an invisible interface is actually very much connected to power and to the fact that you sort of only ever making things invisible for some people, but not for others. And that's what I'm going to get at in the talk. Okay. Thank you so much. Yourself, you're a social cultural linguist. Could you explain to us what social cultural linguist actually is and which role it plays in your actual research? Yeah, so I'm a social cultural linguist, which very broadly speaking means that my research is about how language impacts society and vice versa. So I'm interested in how particular understandings of or views that people may have of, say, gender are reflected in how we talk about that matter and vice versa how also how people talk about gender over time actually impacts social norms and you know for instance what people understand to be the role of women in our society so it's this idea that the words and language that we use really have an impact on bigger social issues i did share with you um article that i found Um, this is an opinion article called Digital Normativity, a Challenge for Human Subjectivation, uh, to be found in the section AI for Human Learning and Behavior. It's online, published by Frontiers Media. For me, I would like to take it as an introduction reference purpose in the matter. Uh, what is your take on this? Cool, yeah, no, it was a really cool article you shared with me. So I think... What's really cool about it is it has this nice sort of definition of normativity at the beginning, right? So it's, I'm going to quote from the article here. It says that normativity is the act of establishing standards that humans incorporate as what should be considered as normal in their lives and guide their actions. It's very jargony, it's very complex, but basically what that means is that when something is normative, it means that it tells us what's socially acceptable and normal or not, right? And I mean, sort of, I, I like to think about these things in really basic examples. So when you think, for instance, think about how clothes are organized in a shopping center, right? There's usually a women's section and there's a men's section. And 
that's a normative decision because it tells us when we go shopping that, you know, men and women are supposed to dress differently, that there are certain things that men are supposed to wear and certain clothes that women are supposed to wear. And it's not an accident that the clothes are separated in this way, right? There's someone who decided how this should be done. And so it's really essentially by design that we have these different norms. And that's, of course, an example from the physical world, but it's the same with digital design too, right? There too, we always sort of make certain decisions when we design something. We always have particular expectations about what the world is supposed to look like that are embedded in the design as such. And that sort of then establish what counts as maybe the right kind of behavior in our society. And that's sort of why I think it's really important for us as designers to grapple with that topic of normativity and ask us, well, what are the norms that we reinforce in our designs? If you could pick one point um, which you find important in this article, which one would you take? So the article also mentions, or I mean, actually, it puts a lot of emphasis also on artificial intelligence. And I think that's a really interesting topic because, of course, AI always also has particular norms embedded in it, right? Because the data that we use in artificial intelligence, of course, depends sort of, or it decides and determines what the AI ends up producing. So to maybe make this a bit more concrete, there's this example that's, it's actually a couple of years old now. I think it's, It was in 2015, but it still really illustrates this nicely. So Amazon used to have this recruiting tool that they used to screen applications. And at some point they realized, wait, our AI system is actually discriminating against women. And so they ended up having to scrap that tool because they couldn't really figure out why and how it was discriminating it uh, against women. I, I mean, I'm not an expert, so I also don't know why and what went wrong. But basically the general problem that you, of course, have with a system like that is that If you were to, say, use CVs of people in the that you've hired in the past to give to the AI, AI to recognize successful candidates, and maybe you've had discriminatory hiring practices in the past, then obviously the fact that you're using an AI now is not going to make your hiring decisions any better or any more fair because the AI is just going to replicate your past hiring practices. Right? It's, I mean, in very simple terms, it's garbage in, garbage out. And so I think sort of what we see there is that sort of problem that we maybe have with more complex technological systems that they seem sort of almost neutral because it's just the technology, right? But of course, it's still built by humans. So it still has human biases built into it. That's uh, we are doing the rule that the AI is following at the end. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But because it's AI, it's sort of very easy to say, well, it's just... It's just the technology making decision. It's not the human making decision behind it. But of course, you're sort of, you know, sweeping under the table that there were humans making decisions in building the AI. And uh, what is your personal opinion concerning AI and normativity? I don't know if you already did answer before, <laughs> but uh, maybe, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that's good. I can reach it. Yeah, I do think we really just touched on that before, right? It's that... It's sort of that problem or main risk that we have is that people sometimes tend to forget that AIs are not unbiased, judgment-free solutions. That it's really something that is also very much, you know, enmeshed with human bias. And that because of that, it sort of shouldn't be seen as this just fix that we have for our human problems. So the problem with AI normativity is really that it may seem more neutral, 
it may seem as if we're cutting out human error, but we're really not. Uh, let us do an example live now. We are looking together at the Facebook sign-up form. I'm going there, tack, click, I am there. Yes. Yeah, so oh. maybe for people listening in, you can go to facebook.com slash sign-up. And just make sure that you're not locked in, because otherwise you don't see the sign-up form, obviously. Simply, I'm not. I see create a new account. Okay, I'm there. So basically, what I want you to do is... Um, so we're getting away from the topic of AI again and just to norms as such, obviously. Uh, so what I want you to do is just look at this and think about what norms you see in this interface. So what decisions has someone in the design of this made about who should be using Facebook? So what I see is a gender, male, female, or custom. I could be a custom gender. They, uh, we can be wish them an happy birthday. Okay, that could be two people. Okay, and then I can put a gender. Your pronoun is visible. To, okay, I can put a pronoun and I can give a gender. I can also uh, create a new gender name and it's optional. It's not a must to give my gender. Yeah. So I think you're looking at something interesting there because, right, the interface has certain sort of norms embedded in it about, you know, people's gender and, you know, what are sort of, in a way, normal gender options because sort of male and female are presented as the default options. And if you want to enter a custom gender, you have to do an extra step. So that sort of tells us something about what is considered sort of more or less normal. And you could, of course, say that, yeah, proportionally, there might be more people who identify as female and male rather than say, I don't know, gender fluid, but still sort of the fact that these two options are presented as the default ones, sort of that subtly reinforces also that that is the most normal case. And then actually the other things that I think is interesting, things that are interesting about this interface is also you have other norms that are really way less obvious to us living in a Western culture. Like they're asking for a first and a last name. Not everybody has one first and one last name, right? There are people who have, you know, names that don't really fit these norms because they might have multiple last names. They might have names that have, you know, a capital letter, too many capital letters for Facebook to be considered sort of a proper real name, or they might have first names that consist only of initials. So again, we have very particular norms and expectations that are, you know, sometimes so deeply ingrained in our own culture that we don't even really see them. And I think it's important to become aware of them and realize, okay, these are actually Western norms and not necessarily universal norms, right? That's true. That's so true. That's, so sort of, I hope that by looking at this interface, we can sort of realize that it looks really banal and normal, but it's not necessarily as universal as we might think it is. It's m very much addressing a particular Western user. So the design itself also tells us that, you know, the user that is supposed to be using Facebook is typically a Western user. Added to this, is there a concrete use case in everyday designer work context? Hmm, okay, that is a tough question because I think the main thing about normativity and design is that it's all about becoming more aware of your biases and become aware of the fact that you are very likely perpetuating dominant social norms through your design, right? And that often this happens unconsciously because 
as we just discussed, like some of these things just seem so obvious or normal or, you know, quote unquote natural to us that we don't realize that they are actually socially learned and not just a universal fact. So it's not going to be a concrete use case, but I think one um, important and big first step is just to engage with these normative issues and to really think about these more problematic sides of design, for instance, by reading about them. So that's where you notice that I'm an academic when I suggest to you that you should read more. But I can, I can give you two uh, book recommendations that I think are really, they're nice, they're accessible, and they're really good books. So my first recommendation would be the book Technically Wrong, Sexist Apps, Biased Algorithms, and Other Threats of Toxic Tech by Sarah wechter Um It's maybe a name that some people recognize. She's really, she's amazing, and she's a great practitioner who's especially known for her work in content strategy, and now also, I think, in leadership coaching. And the book is really great because it has lots of examples of these more problematic sides of our field that are presented in a very accessible way. And then my other recommendation is a book that is called Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Gym Code by Ruha Benjamin, who's an amazing scholar who looks specifically at race and technology. So this is a bit more of an academic book, but I think it's still written in a very accessible way and it uncovers some really important issues. So as I said, it's not a concrete use case, but I think these are big issues and taking them seriously means really engaging with this topic again and again and again. And then, and then you can start making smaller changes in your life based on what you learn. So things like advocating for more inclusive language or thinking about whether your design shows covert racism or, you know, I don't know, making your user research pool more diverse by explicitly approaching people that are underrepresented. So yes, definitely not a quick fix or sort of a set of best practices, but I think if we do keep at it, we can make a difference. It's surely something we were not used to the last years, but uh, it's getting always more something we consider. And I think it's something very nice. That's it's evolving. Yeah, and something really important. And that's the thing. Even if we cannot make the huge big change that we would want to do today, even if we can just go one step in that direction, and then, you know, next week we can go another step, or next month we can go another step. That's progress. I'm totally with you, Laura. So based on your experience, uh, what is the state of UX writing in 2023? Other big question. Um, so I think UX writing has really, it's starting to come into its own. Um, I think it started to gain a foothold. Uh, I mean, if you, if you look back 10 years ago, you wouldn't have found really anyone hiring someone to specifically design the words in an interface, right? Someone, I mean, someone has been writing the words, but it wasn't really seen as this proper job, right? And that's, that has changed, right? There are more and more companies that do have dedicated UX artists and content designers, and you also do some more do see more and more job postings out there for UX artists and content designers specifically, and that's that's really cool because I think language does play such an important role also in design and in how design actually you know impacts what people can do then when they use a particular product. And I mean, sort of in terms of the state, I do think it's UX writing is coming into its own, but it's still a bit in its infancy. So it's maybe sort of where UX designers were 10, 15 years ago, you know, where people were also getting excited about design and UX and were recognizing it as valuable, but where it was sort of 
still sort of coming and having to establish itself. Which leads me to the next question, because I was uh, myself very interested to know a bit more about what is what we need or what is missing today to establish the UX writing as an integral part, an official profession in the UX field. So I think what's missing is maybe sometimes a bit like a clearer understanding that UX writers do really so much more or can do so much more than just writing and just polishing words, right? So I I mean, I did a lot of cool research, also some um, participant observation research with UX writers as part of my PhD. And really, the writing of the words is maybe 10%. And yet it's often sort of sometimes gets perpetuated as this like, oh yeah, UX writers do the words in interfaces. But they do a whole lot of, you know, conceptual thinking behind it too. So it's really, it's basically, I would almost say it's the same job as what UX designers do, except the end product that they produce is words and not necessarily visual designs. Now, in terms of sort of clarifying that in the industry itself, I think one thing that is important to figure out is how to sell the value of UX writing also towards business stakeholders. And maybe I'm, not just, maybe I'm just saying this because I'm in the middle of reading a really cool book by Yael Ben David, who's writing about the business of UX writing. But it's really sort of about that. She makes this point that, you know, if you want to be taken seriously, you have to also recognize which context you're working in. And that typically is a business context. So I'm not saying you have to sell yourself out, far from it, but it's sort of important to realize how can you really push for what you want to push for and who do you need to be talking to? And thank you, Laura. If I may add myself, I did the start uh, in the industry working as an art director and we had people doing the visuals and people doing the text. And um, when we did a campaign and it is printed or uh, also online, it was always about the feeling when you say something and you want to have a call to action. Also in many languages, you had the way visually to, to push it, but also how to say it. And mm. they put so much time in choosing the right word to give the brand experience further. And this feeling of being invited and also with the, the key person they want to target. And sometimes I'm thinking when you do an interface on UX design, it's pretty much the same. Choose wisely your word, choose wisely to whom you're talking. And uh, that's clear that you need someone who should concentrate on the message. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. If, if you do actually take any interface and you strip out all the words, it's probably going to become very unusable, right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so words are really integral to design. And then what would you recommend for people who want to start in this field, like me, for example? So starting in UX writing. Exactly. Well, um, I think it depends. So if you already are in sort of UX or design as such, then I think it's going to be easier actually for you because then you sort of, you already understand the lingo of the field and sort of what people expect and whatnot. And, you know, then you just sort of brush up on working with language. And I'm assuming if you want to get into UX writing, you already have probably kind of a passion for that or you enjoy words. So I would say just look at the more specific UX writing resources. I can 
I mean, some great books that have come out in the last couple of years are, I mean, there's uh, Writing is Designing by Michael J. Metz and Andy Welfel, or there's Strategic Writing strategic writing for UX by Tori Podmajorski, which are really cool, sort of these, yeah, they give a great overview of sort of how to approach UX writing as such. Now, if you don't come from UX, but come from somewhere else altogether, maybe more from a language oriented sort of profession I don't know maybe you come from marketing writing or you know more kind of copywriting or just you know content more generally then I think it actually makes sense to look a bit into UX writing but also much more just look into UX as such you know and understand sort of different sort of ways of approaching design so maybe take a, take an online crash course or just some of the basics so that you actually understand all the buzzwords that people use in UX and Sort of the last tip that I have, especially if you're in a country like, I don't know, like Switzerland, where we do have some UX writing positions, but not that many, it can also be very valuable to just look for UX adjacent positions. So maybe you can get a content creative role or something still in marketing, but at a comp company that also does have a UX team and where sort of UX and marketing talk to one another. And then you can maybe learn from the people that already do UX in the company and you can just bring yourself in and show like, look, I know all this stuff about UX writing. Can I try some of it out? And so that you can sort of gradually shift your focus. So Lara, you fully finished now with your study, as I did understood. What is your next move? Yeah, so as you say, I just finished my PhD. So I'm actually looking for my next adventure. So I'm really keen on getting back into the thick of it and working on actual design projects. I love research, but I would like to do something that's maybe a bit more applied. So I'm actually, I'm actually job hunting at the moment for either something in the area of UX writing or in UX research. So anyone listening, Lara is available. Don't hesitate to contact her. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, Lara, where can one contact you? And if they want to know more or they have something for you. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, my profile is Laura-Portman. Uh, Laura I'm also on Twitter. My handle is Laura underscore Portman, although I'm really not active there at the moment. But if you message me, I'll message back. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you are at the Interaction 23 conference, come and talk to me. I'd be really keen on connecting. Yeah, and otherwise just... If you want to, I'm sure you can find me online. And really, if you just hit me up, I'm more than happy to talk about these topics with anyone who's interested. And for those who want to find her at Interaction 23, she is talking on Thursday, 2nd March at 4.20 in the afternoon, even time Zurich. So just be there and you could meet Laura. So thank you so much to everyone and to you, Laura. And we wish you the best for the next step of your career. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.